0: Uh, and welcome to classical stuff you should know. This is a spring break edition. <laughs> huh. Uh, any- anyway, we are on spring break. <laughs> and <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> we're just moving on from that Coming right at away. You yeah, live yeah. from Austin, Austin Beach. Okay, no, great. coming at you live from South by Southwest. Wow!
1: I guess it is technically <laughs> true. Oh, that's <laughs> actually true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. We,
0: have, we are in no way affiliated with South, by, South right. by Southwest. You don't have to clarify that. And we are now... Oh, look, we just got an email with a cease and desist from South by Southwest. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, but yes, it is spring break. We are here. We are casting pods with you. We are Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about the classical world, ancient things, and... Um, We're not trying to rediscover a golden age of education, but we're trying to think about what makes education timeless, about the human soul, Um, and how human beings have not drastically changed from 3,000 years ago till now. That we all, our hearts are still the same, we all desire the same things, and um, there is a way to grow up the child into honorable manhood and womanhood. And that is what we like to explore and talk about and think about. Man, what a pitch, Donald. That was I know, that's so nice? that a super good intro. Can you Thank record you.
1: that and just do that every time? Uh, yeah.
0: okay. Well, it starts with s- 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 <laughs> <laughs> except for that part actually.
1: Yeah, if you could just remove that part. <laughs>
0: um, and maybe I think you are taking the reins on this one. What are we going to learn today?
1: I As with most episodes, I I kind of have no idea, but we'll see. We'll see where we end up. So, the, our starting place for today is a little book called Eight, Okay. It's a preface to Paradise Lost. I think this was uh, before it was its own separate book, it was like literally a preface to Paradise preface lost. That, yeah. that was
2: at the yeah. beginning of paradise, paradise lost. lost. And it was a separate. very large edition of it, obviously. Yeah.
1: So this is, m- so paradise lost, just hearing uh, Graham and AJ talk about it feels like one of those books that I ought to in fact read. So I'm working my way up to that. So I, I think on AJ's suggestion, he said to read the preface before reading paradise lost itself, which makes sense. It is a preface. So this is my first time through it. Is it this is a book you all have read before, correct?
2: Yeah. It's by CS Lewis for yeah. those who are
1: listening. And
0: yeah. it's, I, it's, it's really the, good. One of the backbones of how I teach the book in class. A lot of what you've heard me talk about on the podcast about paradise lost is the ideas were started by that book and then sort of expanded on by just me talking
2: about it in class and having kids say stuff. And I go, Oh, less smart. <laughs> I've done seminars on stuff from that book that have nothing to do with paradise lost. It's, Say more about that. There, there's so much content in there that yes. isn't just how to read and understand paradise lost. Totally. There's, a ton about epic poetry, epic poetry and virtue and how she'd read classics and how we should accept the book and how the theology of Milton interacts with the theology of today. It's really good. Yeah, it is really good.
1: I I was, I was, so I've only just started reading it and it's my first time through it. What surprised me is how it's not really talking about Dante or, or I'm sorry, how it's not really talking about Milton or paradise lost yet. It is, it's setting the stage with like different types of epic before it gets into paradise lost. So that was a surprising thing to me. I think one of you had said that maybe the drier parts of this book are the earlier sections yes. of it. Does yeah, that... the
2: first two chapters about primary and secondary epic yes. are just kind of boring if yes. you're not interested in that sort of thing, but it does get better. Yeah,
1: because you all had both read Paradise Lost before coming to the preface, correct? <sighs> um, I can't remember.
0: Okay. My history was of it was I read Paradise Lost a little bit in a poetry class in college and then got a job here many years later and they're like, hey, can you teach Paradise Lost? And I was, and uh, I said, of course I can. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever read this. All the way <laughs> through. And then I read the, that preface and then taught the class. And then taught the class after that. Okay. that all that makes sense. Seven years later, still love Milton.
1: Good. That's actually, that's high praise. So just to say, listener, I will, of course, encourage you to pick up a co- copy of the Preface to Paradise Lost, but... You might have the same experience I do of saying he's not talking about Paradise Lost very much. And that is he has to set the stage before he can get into the book itself. There's a context. He has this really interesting idea of like Milton chose this specific form of epic for a reason. And that's kind of what he's going through in the first few chapters. So it's interesting, but uh, I have no context having never read. Paradise Lost. So I'll just say that. So the chapter we'll start with today is actually the second chapter. So, uh, so AJ is talking about, the, he's talking through this difference of primary and secondary epic, but we're going to talk about this chapter, Is Criticism Possible?, which is a digression from his like main argument. So we're not really going to be talking about Paradise Lost. Sorry, listener. So here's the quote from the beginning of the chapter, and we'll go from there. Uh, the title of the chapter is, Is Criticism Possible?, but first, a necessary digression. A recent remark of Mr. Eliot's prose, uh, I'm sorry, a, ne- a recent remark of Mr. Elliot's poses for us at the outset, the, found- the fundamental question whether we, mere critics, have any right to talk about Milton at all. Mr. Eliot says bluntly and frankly that the best contemporary practicing poets are the only jury of judgment whose verdict on his own views of Paradise Lost he will accept. He goes on. So... The only people who can say whether Paradise Lost is good or not is modern, is contemporary poets. So, like, good poets can say whether Milton is good or not.
0: Is this is Lewis's claim or what Elliot's This is Elliot's, Elliot's claim.
1: claim. This is Elliot's claim, which, to spoil, Lewis will eventually refute, or very quickly refute. So, just hearing Elliot's stance, what do, you, what do you have to say to that? So, let me see if I can break
0: this down a little bit. So, Elliot says, the people who know how to criticize the game are people who've played the game at a high level. Yes. Whereas Lewis says you can have never played the game, but you can be a student of the game and have know a lot about the game and therefore, and therefore criticize the game. Is that
1: kind of... I, I guess I'm spoiling all the conversation, but I don't think Lewis ends up giving very satisfactory criteria for who gets to say yeah. whether Paradise Lost is good or not. But he does say that it's insufficient to say that only modern... Let me get the right phrase the best contemporary practicing poets. He doesn't think that those are the only people who get to be the jury of judgment for paradise lost. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's like the same, you hear that argument in like sports writing, Mm -hmm. right? Like, or commentators. Do you want to like, are people who've never played hockey? Can they write about hockey and talk about hockey and be critical about hockey? Um, Oh, for the, you guys from Texas, so hockey is a game <laughs> that is played <laughs> on a frozen surface of ice. Wait, what? And... Really? That's
1: weird. Why would anyone do that? It sounds boring. Wow. Um, I don't know. How would you get the
0: ball through the hood? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> um, you flatten the ball, you freeze it, and it's <laughs> made of galvanized rubber. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, I think I disagree with Elliot. I think I have to because I teach the book and talk about the book. And, and you yourself
1: are not a... I
0: myself am not a, a high-level epic poet
1: i've read some i've read some of your emails they're pretty good <laughs> they, they get up there <laughs> they
2: get, yeah they get super long and you do
1: write um wonderful like uh toasts like you, you write poetry uh during meetings sure so, but those yeah. are jokes yeah but they're also wonderful so and that's because i'm like i should be paying attention to the meeting <laughs> So like i end doodling, up writing, writing a poem uh, writing
0: little poems about the meeting feels okay <laughs>
1: AJ, what say you? So, Elliot stands on one side and says that only the best contemporary practicing poets can be ju- the jury of judgment for Paradise Lost, and Lewis says, nah. And I'll give Lewis his arguments in a second after this, but
2: what say ye? Oh, man, I, I mean, I guess I'm still sort of developing my notions about what I believe about this. Good for you. But here's here's where I'm kind of landing right now. Only those who have a developed understanding of a thing can can best criticize whether a thing is good or not. Yes. But whether a thing is good or not should also be recognizable, at least at a low level, by those who enjoy it. And it depends on the thing, right? So let's say wine, mm-hmm. right? So I'm, I am don't really like wine. I'm not a huge wine guy, but I, I can have wine and I can say, this tastes kind of good or this tastes kind of bad. But a sommelier is going to be better able to tell me whether something is fantastic or not. Mm-hmm. But wine is something that you kind of have to have a developed palette for, right? It's not for everybody. But there are certain things that are supposed to be entertainment, right? And if I have to be a professional actor to enjoy a certain movie, that movie is failing, mm-hmm. right? It is it is designed to entertain the masses. And if it's not entertaining the masses, it's doing it wrong, right? So as far yeah. as poetry goes, I guess it depends on who it's aimed at, right? If, I, if I'm talking... Instagram poetry. Well, that's aimed at the masses. If I don't get it, there's probably something wrong there.
1: Is that a thing? Is
0: it- oh, my oh, goodness. Yeah. Is it really? Oh, thing. Yeah. Okay. So just take like a, a common sentence. Like, I saw you walking down the street. But take away all capital letters mm-hmm. and then... Put it in um, a, a
2: serif font Put it that in looks a like serif, a typewriter. Put it
0: in a serif font. Put it and then... T- uh, have, obviously, it's a digital photo, but make it look like it's typewritten then and have then, like a
2: black and white sort of curly drawing around the edges or something. And then just do line breaks at weird spots. So it's, I saw you walking
0: <laughs> down the street. I, and everyone's just like, oh my goodness. Which sounds
1: horrible. So I used, I, I mean, I still have the Twitter. It's private, so no one try and look it up. But all of my tweets were haiku. So maybe I was like the... Uh, the proto this person, neither of you all are following me. So neither Seriously? Of you, have yeah, 100%. you have a hundred percent. You have
0: a only haiku Twitter uh-huh.
1: and each one. Yeah. Anyway. So that's the thing. So when I Google Instagram poetry, the first thing that comes up is an Atlantic article that I hope the title of makes you very sad. How Instagram saved poetry. So <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, so. That's... so there you go. So that's a, I think it's a fine distinction to say that there are different goals of different types of okay. uh, media or entertainment. And so, yeah, something aimed at the masses. The mass, like, that means anyone could say whether it's good or not.
0: Actually, bad Instagram poetry has inspired me to, to, to write, write better? poetry. Actually, I, I wasn't even planning on talking about it, but I sort of have the book right here. I'm giving myself a little, um, like, spring break and also uh, uh, sort of life task. And that is I'm trying to find as many different wacky poetic forms that there are and you know who has the most wacky poetic forms who? the dutch the welsh really oh yes close. um so for example so i'm just shaking i'm writing out all the different kinds of poetic forms that i can find so like i can't even pronounce it a phrase what <laughs> it's dutch uh, it's welsh and um anyway so i'm getting all these different poetic forms i'm writing the in this little book and then i'm going to try to write one poem in that form okay <laughs> As many times as I can. So, like, if I have 30 forms, I'll write 30 poems, then I'll go back to the beginning and try it again, because the free-form crappy Instagram poetry <laughs> just is so annoying. What's the I was e- like, surely someone, surely you can, and also this idea of, so I'm not a poet. I'm not very good at writing poetry. I don't even think I'm all that good with, like, finding words and metaphors. But I have the belief, as a classical educator, that by practicing and copying, mm-hmm. So in this case, copying forms and going and reading good poems in these forms. And by copying them um, and and trying to like do what other people who are writing in these forms do, you get better at it. And hopefully you can kind of get to the point where something is more competent. You're apprenticing yourself. Yes, similar to like if you were copying the masters in painting. Yes, right. And my hope is that if I do that, then I could – Create something that I'm satisfied with so that every time I read Instagram poetry, I'm not, I'm not sort of horribly Sickened depressed over just sort of how vapid and, um, and sort of shallow everything
2: is. Yeah. Anyway. So, so if we're talking so, Milton, we're, yeah. I, yeah, I, sure. I think Milton is designed to be something that a layperson can read and right. find enjoyment. Yeah. But then is, but more layers are discovered as you study it deeply, right? It, there's more right. to be found, yeah. right? It's it's a good movie where there's symbolism. And if you want to study it, you can. And if you don't want to study it, you can read it once and enjoy it. And that's... But it's good at both levels. Right. And <laughs> isn't that supposed to be the mark of a classic that on the second read, you learn more and you can keep on reading it and it keeps yeah. on giving you more. And that's that's the mark of a good the, book. Mm-hmm. presence of depth, yeah. yeah. All this, so just to wrap up on
1: Instagram poetry, you all have probably heard this before. Robert Frost has a, uh, a wonderful quote. You know, free verse is like playing tennis without a net. Yeah. So good. So, That actually sounds like a really fun
2: game. (laughs) Why is playing tennis without a net terrible? It sounds great. Why why bother, it feels like. (laughs) Right? Well, then you're just playing racquetball, essentially, (laughs) right? Okay, good. Yeah. All right. So were you going to say something else? Well, it
0: was just... um, So in English class, we read a lot of Paradise Lost Out Loud. Or sorry, I read a lot of Paradise Lost Out Loud while we're teaching it. And Paradise Lost has lots of those... um, that were sort of popular when Milton wrote it, a lot of those digressions, Mm -hmm. where when he digresses and he's like, you know what this reminds me of? It's kind of like this. It's kind of like this old Greek army. No, it's not like that old (laughs) Greek army. It's like this Norwegian Viking. No, you know what it's really like? It's like a Norwegian Viking ship that got beached on a stranded whale. And then, anyway, Satan. So there's a lot of these digressions. And when students try to read it at home, they're like, oh my goodness, I have no idea what he's talking about. But I found that when you read it out loud, Students sort of realize when you're digressing, and if you as a good reader are reading it and you have, you know, the emphasis and you have in the right places and the characters are speaking, that a untutored in Milton 15-year-old can sit and listen and get and enjoy it or understand what is happening in the scene. Maybe it's harder for them to read it themselves, but just by listening it, they can get it and Hopefully it is left an impression on them that like, oh my goodness, there's so much here if I wanted if I wanted to go into it, but I can also just kind of enjoy the fact that these demons are talking to each other in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of already kind of interesting. So I think that's that's almost like the it's it you know has enough for the masses, but also has like all the depth, like a, like a good movie or a, um, So I, I don't I like know that. if I don't agree with Elliot where the only way to assess whether something is good or bad, is if you yourself are a poet? I mean, Elliot's saying that because he's
2: because a he's a poet. Yeah, right. I mean, like, for, so for take example, I know we're still digressing here, but That's the Shawshank not... Redemption, uh-huh. right? If you've if you I've haven't never seen... seen it, what? you're missing out. What? I know it yeah. is a great movie. It's about a guy who ends up in jail and then mm-hmm. eventually escapes, and how how all that happens. And it's it's really enjoyable on a first watch. It's got Morgan Freeman. Mm-hmm. He narrates the whole thing as he should. But if you want to go deeper, you can and see how they use lighting to evince like when it, it's actually warm sunlight. That's when he's feeling most human, and when right. he's in jail and feeling inhuman, it's these dark, overcast days. So like the basic way that they frame every shot and do all the cinematography. Well, if you're a cinematographer, mm-hmm. you're going to appreciate, also appreciate it. it. But if you're a random person in the audience and just watch the movie, it's also still good. Yeah, I like that. So let's
1: go through Lewis's argument, and then we'll go on to our next uh, writer who has some thoughts on this. So. Lewis takes this more from a logical perspective. So, again, Eliot is saying only the best contemporary practicing poets can be the jury of judgment for Paradise Lost. So, Lewis says, let us consider what would follow if we took Mr. Eliot's view seriously. The first result is that I not being one of the best contemporary poets cannot judge Mr. Eliot's criticism at all. What then shall I do? Shall I go to the best contemporary poets who can and ask them whether Mr. Eliot is right. But in order to go to them, I must first know who they are. And this by hypothesis, I cannot find out the same lack of poethood, which renders my critical opinions on Milton <laughs> worthless, renders my opinions on Mr. Pound or Mr. Auden equally worthless. Shall I then go to Mr. Eliot and ask him to tell me who the best contemporary poet poets are but this again will be useless i personally may think mr Eliot a poet in fact i do but then as he has explained to me my thoughts on such a point are worthless i cannot find out whether mr elliot is a poet or not and until i have found out i cannot know whether his testimony to the poethood of mr pound or mr auden is valid isn't that funny it is funny i like that and then at the basis of this of his whole critical edifice then lies the judgment i am a poet but this is a critical judgment. It therefore follows that when Mr. Elliot asks himself, am I a poet? He has to assume the answer I am before he can find the answer I am. And that's so fundamentally, it's a logical point he makes that we can't know who these great poets are. And so we can't use that as a criteria.
2: Yeah. If your judgment's taken out of it, you have to trust the judgment of those that you cannot judge. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: again, he takes it more from a logical perspective. But what you are getting at is something more fundamental and I think is important. So our... I was going to go in a different order, but based on what y'all are saying, let's go to Leo Tolstoy. Who is Leo Tol- Tolstoy? What do y'all know about this fella?
2: He's Russian. Russian. Uh, was he... What, what did he write? Did Anakrenino, he write The Death of Ivan
1: Ilyich? Oh, Ornpeace. Ornpeace,
0: The Death of Ivan... Mean, I don't know about that. Yes, I think The Death wrote, of Ivan
1: Ilyich. Um, yeah.
0: I have only ever read... Little, oh, uh, How Much Land Does One Man Need? Or something like that. That little short story. You read that short story. I've never read yeah,
1: it. How Much Land does One Man
2: no, Need? No, I didn't read it. I'm, I'm getting oh. him confused with Dostoevsky. Exactly. That's Russian, is, right? Is the yeah. trouble. Yeah. Was he, he was the guy that sort of invited a whole bunch of dudes to sort of live at his house and his wife didn't like it and he...
1: That sounds right. That also died, sounds like him? the story of the death of Ivan Ilyich. Died, isn't died at a train station? Or am I thinking yeah, Dostoevsky? I died at a train station with Anna, Anna Kronina. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, Maybe also his I'm, life. I'm getting all his the Russian stuff mixed up. A Russian author. That yeah. is what we're getting at here. So, War and Peace and Anna Karenina are probably the most yeah. relevant to people listening, or the one you've probably heard you, of. Uh,
0: Hannenberg, you have a beautiful copy, a three-volume set of War and Peace, the Everyman Library on your shelf. And I must practice the Christian virtues because I
2: covet it. <laughs> and I mustn't. Well, then practice that I I just, then, then that three volume set is doing its job i know the yes. job that i put <laughs> <important>. it there <laughs> well <done. laughs> I, I
0: just covet all of those beautiful everyman library books yeah. oh my goodness i have a copy it's coming in the mail of um brideshead revisited mm-hmm. never read it mm-hmm. and i got the everyman copy for like eight bucks cool. used on amazon i'm super stoked sounds think, like a good book
1: i think the searcy institute did a close reads series on brideshead revisited oh, really? so you might want to listen to that too because it was pretty good. I, I was not reading it with them, but... Okay, so Tolstoy wrote number of um, novels, short stories, number of things, Russian author. And he also wrote an essay that I find helpful, interesting, uh, called What is Art? Have you all read What is Art before? I have not read What is Art. Okay, so I feel like it coming from Tolstoy matters. I mean, he, having created art, sure. might have some really interesting ideas on what is art. Yep, So School us, yeah, let me. I'll give you a couple quotes, and then we'll distill it from there the business of art lies just in this to make that understood and felt which in the form of an argument might be incomprehensible and inaccessible the business of art lies just in this to make that understood and felt which in the form of an argument might be incomprehensible and inaccessible
2: so if i'm trying to say how i feel about a meadow at dusk Mm -hmm. I you can't. Arg- I can't argue you into understanding mm-hmm. that. It is best if I express it to you in some other form, sure. like a painting or a song or something like that. Yes. Yes.
0: Leaving, yeah, some
2: sort of artifact that leaves that emotional impression, or
0: leaves that that uh, not not just an emotional impression, but leaves that impression of, of of how something makes you feel and think and reflecting on the understanding of yeah, my
2: complete experience of a Meadow. Dusk. Perfect. Yes. yes. Yeah. So there is that's the. Good, I like that. Definition. Yeah, that's a really good definition. Yeah,
1: that, so that's. You're, you're talking to the, like, aesthetic a- aspect of it, so there are things of beauty that we can't experience purely through, you know, bullet-pointed arguments, but there's also an element of it. So, yes, you you feel something for beauty, but also there are, like, moral arguments that you wouldn't agree to if I just said, uh, Graham, you should stop coveting that book over there. Mm-hmm. Instead, I, I can tell you a story yeah. about someone who coveted a book, and then that book killed them, or yeah. something – I can make you feel that coveting is bad i now feel that way <laughs> just based on me giving you this, death. <laughs> the death the one sentence summary of my wow my
2: horrible book so let's see art also it turns sp- out the everman library use toxic glue <laughs> and the more you read their books the more toxic I glue steal it get.
0: and I'm, I'm trying to read it on my car drive home and i drop it and
1: it hits the accelerator and i go flying off the bridge oh my gosh y'all are writing the story <laughs> for me right now i i, I hate this so art is to evoke in oneself a feeling one has once experienced and having evoked it oneself that by means of movement lines, colors, sounds or forms expressed in words. So to transmit that feeling that others may experience the same feeling, that is the activity of art. So it is that you're trying to transmit something to someone else. Right. So feeling is one part of it, but he also Tolstoy he keeps going back to art must be moral. So any art that is conveying a, an immoral teaching in a positive way is bad art, regardless of the beauty of the thing itself. So my boy, William Blake, the marriage of heaven and hell yep. would be bad art. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Was, he was moral. He was you know he making was moral, about? I don't know, unless it was satire and. What, William Blake? Isn't that? It was definitely moral. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, but he, he, he believed the things he was writing in the marriage of heaven and hell. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he did. And so even if you could say, oh, it's so beautifully written, the content of what is being written about matters to Tolstoy. By saying much.
0: like, just be uh, like licentious and uh, yes, yeah. yeah. What does he, what does he base that on?
1: Tolstoy's? Uh, is Tolstoy? his personal experience so he, well, he, so he has just this, says he, to be good art it has to be moral well, well, remember, had, we, we posed this question to our seniors it
0: when uh and when we talked about the portrait of dorian gray what was the question that we asked them to start the unit do you remember it's the one that you and i really disagreed on it was about like art and moral and what's good art do you blame do you blame art for the impression that it
2: leaves on oh. people uh yeah, do you blame is the is the artist culpable for his art? I think was the question. Yeah, no, no. The, the question is, can art itself be moral or immoral? That's right. So Tolstoy and would say yes. Because uh, Tolstoy would say yes. Because Oscar Wilde says no. there right. is, a, a book is neither good nor bad. It is either well written or poorly written. It cannot be moral itself. Yeah. And I was on the. I was on. I was taking the side of Oscar, Oscar Wilde, Wilde in that conversation. And I okay. disagree with that. I, I guess yeah. I take the side of Tolstoy and yeah. say that.
0: That um, a book, a beautiful book that is immoral. Like, for example, I have tried twice in my life to read uh, Lolita. Mm-hmm. Um, Nabokov's mm-hmm. Nabokov Nabokov I can't I don't know how to pronounce his name sounds you like think, Nabokov. You think of someone who watches a lot of hockey would know how to pronounce Russian <laughs> Russian names. Proud of you. Um, but anyway, uh, I've tw- twice in my life tried to read that book, and it's a book about like a thirteen year old girl's sexual encounters with a like a forty year old man lodging in her house, mm-hmm. and it's every time I read it, it is just so dark and depressing that I I can't. Even if it, I, I can't sort of distill any beauty from it because it's just so nasty. Um, but there are people who say that this book is like, you know, a, a a important piece of literature. And I and for whatever reason, I just can't get over the fact that it just feels so like smutty. Right. Um, even there was like a, a book that uh, someone was talking about. I think it was called Reading Lolita in Tehran. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was just thinking about that as like a concept. I was, and I think, what they were saying was, we take this book and we bring it to these women that are oppressed in this sort of oppressive regime, and we show them that, hey, through the power of literature, like you can liberate yourself from oppressive, you know, patriarchy or whatever. And I mean, okay, that's that's maybe a fine concept, but Lolita, <laughs> really, that's the book are <laughs> use. You use right? I don't know. I um, I feel like either I'm missing something or I just way I just very much strongly agree with Tolstoy on
2: this. Yeah. You Want to say anything to the contrary? Uh, it depends on how far you want to dive into this conversation.
1: It is, it, it's relevant. Let me just say that. So Tolstoy does say that it matters the moral argument that the author is making in their work. The issue of beauty is separate, but you need both to have a great to have a work of art. Essentially, you need both it to be conveyed well and a good thing to be conveyed. So I think it's relevant to the discussion. We're gonna yeah.
2: The position I was taking in that conversation that I had with Donaldson is that, so Donaldson, you reacted negatively to that book. How do you know the author didn't write Lolita to give you those feelings? That no matter how how much someone may glorify the sexual exploit, exploits of the young, it's smut, right? He wrote it to show you that no matter how much it might be beautified, you should have that reaction that you had, right? The book itself is not moral. Your reaction to the book is moral. Sure. Or I mean, I never, I've, I've never finished it because I every every
0: time I. Both times I've read it, I've just sort of had to put it away for the health of
2: my own soul just because it was so depressing. Right. Even if at the end he says, you know, the sexual liaisons of the young are a beautiful thing, Mm -hmm. maybe the author himself intended you to act in revulsion to that and then always hold an opinion otherwise. Uh, But then what happens to those that... What about, say, what about Paradise Lost, right? Some people react to Paradise Lost and say that Satan is the hero. Yeah, yeah. Right? In that sense, that would be an immoral book. But they're having an, a wrong reaction to the book itself, right? Yeah, but then this comes down to criticism.
0: So this comes down to um, you're I'm not so much arguing authorial intent, but arguing, like, what does the book have in it that makes it up, that is advocating or not advocating a specific reading of that book? And I know that you and I differ on this, that I think that there are – readings of things. And in fact, when we get to my podcast in a couple of episodes when we're going to be talking about the wasteland, um, anyway, we'll get to that. Um, but I know that I have a stronger belief in the fact that there are canonical readings of things and then there are bad takes on things. Oh, I'm, I'm and you're you. Say, no, 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 no. But you're saying that like, um, if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, that when I read Lolita and I say, oh my, let's not use Lolita because I've never finished it, so it's sort of a bad example. But um, if we use Paradise Lost and I say, no, Satan is not the hero, like because he ends the book a laughable snake, and and um, and clearly what he's done is so terrible. Uh, and people say Satan's totally the hero because look what he, look how like awesome he is in book one uh, and book four. He's so like you know majestic and like cover of a metal album, and he's just so cool. Um, and I say, well, you're not taking the whole book into consideration. Like, we need to have a critical back and forth. But um, – and at the end of that, I, I would say Milton is intending the view that I've come away with and the view that, that C.S. Lewis is is talking about. Like, that was his intent. And the people who read this and say, Satan's actually the hero and Milton is like an iconoclast. They're, that's just a bad take. They're, they're incorrect. And you're saying, no um, – um, how can you not know that Milton intended no, that? No, no,
2: that's... I, I'm not arguing authorial intent. I'm saying that authorial intent aside, the book is an artifact, and how you react to that artifact makes you moral or immoral. The artifact is itself an, a, a thing. It's, it's like a rock, right? It's your reaction to that that is moral or immoral. No, the rock has been... And how you use the it. The rock has been crafted in a way that is going to...
0: Um, have desired effects on, on human souls. The so there's really the authorial intent. Fine. But I mean, but um, like, um, so we have an Elton John, you have an Elton John album on your, on your wall. Right. Yeah. And um, Elton John wrote, what album is it? Breaking hearts, breaking hearts. Breaking um, hearts. So Elton John wrote that album and, uh, and you know, you write music because you want people to like listen to music and love the music and enjoy the music. Um, um, if, and so craft and care was put into it to have it be sonorous, to have it be, um, um, melodies that are catchy and stick in your mind. Um, and if you put in songs of, of like absolute dissonance or key changes that were felt terrible or beats that changed every measure, so you couldn't keep up with it, like you've now crafted an artifact that is uncomfortable to listen to. Now, if he did that, he would be doing that on purpose, and he could say, I've crafted this because I want you to feel uncomfortable, or I've crafted this because I want you to, you know, because this is a, you know, my sweet jams, and I want you to enjoy it. I feel like the same is true when you're talking about um, about um, uh, uh, immoral books. Like, if somebody is, is is glorifying, you know, the sexual exploits of, of the, you know, pre of the young... Um, and everything in that book is made for its uh, is made for its glorification, then um, I don't see how you can go around and say, I, ah, but he's just doing that to make you think to like, he re- he's just doing it to make you want to realize how gross it is. I don't know. That's, that just feels like that's the, like someone who's making pornography says like, oh, but you know, we're doing this just to like, you know, liberate human sexuality. And it's like, no, you're not, you're trying to make, you know, making money and, and, you know, you're, Going to lowest common denominators, and no one believes that you're doing this to like benefit society. I don't.
2: Or, I don't think pornography could.
0: be only really not or, called
1: art. Sure. Yes, or you write a shallow book and you oh, say, "Oh, what's the oh, difference I'll
0: between be... pornography?" Well, didn't they say
2: the difference between pornography and erotica is lighting? It's <laughs> not the quote. Know. Anyway. So, for example, one something that might illustrate my viewpoint. I once wrote a poem uh, about Methuselah. Right. And I put him in modern day. Methuselah lived a long time, 969 years, I think it was. And his dad, Methuselah's dad, was taken up by chariot into heaven. Right. And so if I am a young boy and my father had been taken up into heaven, right. I think it was, I uh, forget his dad's Enoch. name, Enoch. Enoch. He, he was taken and he was not because God took him. Right. So if my dad was taken up by God and I'm hitting year 968. And I'm thinking, man, I'm still here. I've lived longer than anybody else I know ever. Maybe the same thing was supposed to happen to me and God forgot. And so in my poem, he spends a lot of time looking at things that represent time. So the rings of a redwood tree, and he can count them. And to him, it seems terrible. And then eventually he stops worrying about all these things. And he, he tries to, you know, fill his time and he messes with people and He turns snarky young children into glassy-eyed philosophers and he'll he puts you know, he just does all kinds of weird stuff to, to fill his time because he has nothing else going on. At the end, he sort of resigns himself to God having forgotten about him. And he does all these things that represent him taking time away from himself. So he shaves his head, he shaves his beard, he cuts all of his fingernails, which all are records of time, and he looks at the tide going in and out because it's timeless, right? It's it's just a circular you know, circular process. At the end of the poem, I have God come down as a mosquito and bow and drink Methuselah's blood as a reservoir of human experience because God didn't have the same experience yet. It was a thousand years of human experience that God got to drink from, right? That is not a great representation of God. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, okay. It's not, right? Yeah. That's, this here is putting human experience above the Godhead sure. and glorifying human experience perhaps above the divine. So wouldn't you say that that is a immoral poem? No, I want you to think about it. That's all. But it's bad. It's not evil. I want you to think. This reaction you're having, it's bad to put a reservoir of human experience above above the existence of God, is perhaps just the reaction I want. But you wrote it thinking it was cool. No, I wrote it thinking it was well-written. But do you recognize that that is a, a sentiment that you disagree with? Yeah. I am allowed to, as an artist, espouse a sentiment I disagree with in the hopes that you might disagree with it as well. I'm going to move us
1: on from here just to say that Tolstoy's view is not entirely agreed with, and actually our next author disagrees with Tolstoy. So
2: just to offer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why I didn't want to get into this. I knew it was no, going to be a long conversation.
1: I, in And one that's not resolved. But I think it's helpful for the listener to hear that Tolstoy's position is not... So, just to reflect on what we just experienced. I, I can't believe we disagree so much on this. Which is fine. But, so, Tolstoy <laughs> put out this view that you all, you thought you initially agreed with. Like, it sounds good when you first hear it of... Still sounds good. Right. You, that art is about conveying something that can't be conveyed through argument.
2: Oh, I still like that part
1: of it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. but Tolstoy, Tolstoy's entire view is that, plus the morality of the piece itself, and that you are conveying a good thing. So, in the way that you want to, you know, we want to be more virtuous. We want to raise up children who are virtuous. We must expose them and ourselves to art that is both beautiful and conveys a moral message. That's Tolstoy's argument. But he has another piece of his argument that I haven't thrown out because I think you all will hate it, is that the art must also be universal. And what does he mean by universal? He means that, universal, anyone can access it. What what he's getting at is that things that are explicitly religious cannot be universal. So anything that is explicitly Christian, there's a certain cultural background you need to understand it. And so that cannot be good art if it is explicitly Christian. So, one epic poem that is particularly relevant to our conversation today does not meet the Tolstoy test of good art. So, Tolstoy's answer to whether Paradise Lost uh, is good art is no because it's too Christian or because it is like explicitly Christian at all.
0: But wouldn't you say there's like timeless things in there? Like, I don't know. The relationship between law and
1: yes. grace or law and will. anyone can will. read and enjoy it, right? Kind not not everyone will understand all of it is a form of the argument. And so because there are like large so he likes the ancients more than he likes the medievals. So things that are secular or a religious he find he finds more universal and accessible than religious art explicitly. That, that is his argument i'm not agreeing or disagreeing yeah. just, that's his argument
2: i think milton's retort
1: as a believer would be that everyone's a christian even if he doesn't want to be <laughs> okay, There you go. okay so a person who writes in opposition to tolstoy's view is harold bloom who i accidentally called alan bloom or one of the other the other re- somewhat recently harold bloom uh, wrote a wonderful book called the western canon which is too thick and too smart for me to have read entirely so i just read sections of it the intro is excellent and his chapter on shakespeare is incredible do y'all know anything? Didn't you read mm-hmm. Harold Bloom somewhat recently? Was it like one of his essays or what? Do you I
0: have uh, Western canon you do? in my okay. class. I've read it every now and then, chapters of it every now and then. Yep.
1: He, he loves Shakespeare. That's my one. He does favorite. love Shakespeare. Yeah. He says Shakespeare invented the human. Yeah. He, uh, so. I'll read another funny quote about that later. Okay. So uh, Harold Bloom reacts to Tolstoy's ep, uh, essay, What is Art? So this is quoting Harold Bloom. Palpably, Tolstoy's essay, like, uh, His What is art is a disaster, prompting the serious question of how so great a writer could have been so mistaken. Disapprovingly, Tolstoy quotes as idolaters of Shakespeare, a distinguished company that includes Goethe, Shelley, Hugo, Turgenev, and he goes on. He could have uh, included many others, indeed, virtually every major writer capable of reading with a few unsavory exceptions like Voltaire. The less interesting aspect, funny? I thought that was good. The less interesting aspect of Tolstoy's rebellion against the aesthetic is creative envy. There's a particular fury in Tolstoy's denial of an imminence shared by Shakespeare with Homer, a sharing that Tolstoy reserved for his own war and peace, which is funny. Much more interesting is Tolstoy's spiritual revulsion against the immoral and irreligious tragedy of King Lear. I prefer such a revulsion to any attempts to Christianize Shakespeare's deliberately pre-Christian drama, and Tolstoy is quite accurate in seeing that Shakespeare Shakespeare, as a dramatist, is neither a Christian nor a moralist. What is art discards not only Shakespeare, but Dante, Beethoven, Raphael, and then he goes into Paradise Lost later. So Harold Bloom says this is a bad way of determining what is art. So where are we right now? T.S. Eliot says Only artists can do it. Only only contemporary. He says contemporary. Contemporary poet, Mm -hmm. eminent contemporary poets can do it now. Well, you can't ask the dead ones. (laughs) That's exactly right. They wrote it down, so there's that. So Eliot says that then Tolstoy says if it accurately can, if it conveys a feeling, if it's a good moral feeling and if it's universal, that is good art. Harold Bloom says, nah, Tolstoy, you're wrong. And his answer to how to figure it out is very similar to Eliot's. He has a quote from the intro. Greatness recognizes greatness and is shadowed by it. <laughs> I love that quote. Uh, Without the canon, we cease to think you may idealize endlessly about replacing aesthetic standards. Yet only strength can join itself to strength. So, a similar position to T.S. Eliot, but Bloom would not say that it's only contemporary poets. He would say that there is a
2: canon, and to attach yourself
1: to the canon, you must be great.
2: Yeah, that's, again, that seems... My question is, who gets to say? he? he runs, doesn't he run into the same problem as Eliot?
1: There's a logical problem that Lewis is getting into, but I don't think he really... I don't think the logic of it is Eliot's problem. I think, so when we say that we appeal to, to, to tradition, or... Graham, what is the reason you were asked to read Paradise Lost? Is it because someone read it and said, oh, this is a really good book? Or is it we look at that time period and say, this is the most important book that comes out of it?
0: Yeah. Um, it's... it's The only thing I can think of is reputation. I think it's probably right. the most basic thing. Is, right. uh, it's probably, oh, yeah, we, Paradise Lost, that sounds, that sounds familiar. We should, probably, we should probably read that. It's probably important. It is probably like at its most basic the way that it was talked about when the 10th grade curriculum was, was drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, um, like, for example, I have, let's see, I'm trying to think of a book that I've, like, I've never read. I have um, warm piece. And I'm trying to think of like, what's a, what's, what that's considered a classic that I myself personally have never read? Um, regardless. So pick, pick a class. I was, you know, I've only read the Aeneid like once mm-hmm. and just, you know uh, real fast um but um in the back of my mind i'm like the aeneid there's probably gold there there's probably like good things if i have if i take the time to dig and find them or for example we are expanding our we're expanding our our curriculum for 12th grade to include a lot more shakespeare plays kids are going to have choice and i had never read uh, it's been had been a long time since I read King Lear. I read King Lear a long time ago, and I just recently reread it. And as I was reading, I was like, "There's really good stuff here." And if I spend even more time, um, you, you, you know, you get these little hints that there's that there's some deeper things going on in this book, and you're like, "Okay, if I just spend more time in this thing, I'm gonna I'm gonna uncover some really interesting, great metaphors, or that, are, or you know, uh, ways of expressing feeling that help me think about." In King's Lear case in King Lear's case like how to be old how to age how to be responsible um so I think there's just like reputations or when you read something and it's not immediately accessible to you but you can see that there seems to be good stuff there I think that's like a test now um, I don't know I'm not I don't wouldn't say that I'm great and I'm definitely not a contemporary poet but I feel like I can recognize, when something has lots to give me, I just need to put the effort in. And when something is candy or when something, when you read it, you're like, oh, there's there's not tons here. Mm-hmm. There's not tons. There's not much here for me. Um, I'm trying to think of like an example of something that I've read in the past that is that is old that when I read, I was like, oh, there's not tons going on. Actually, Voltaire is maybe a good example. Like I remember reading Candide right. and I'm like, oh, I get it. Like. I get your point. Right. Yeah, and it's a simple point, and it's sort of expressed, and it's kind of clever, but, you know...
2: Which is why Tolstoy likes it. Which is why Bloom I get hates it. it. A lot of not, a, not a lot of deep soil mm-hmm. to Candide. Yep.
0: Or um, what was um, Rousseau and his, like, you know, his right. happy savage? Oh, sure. Yeah, I can't remember what the book is. Uh, he's got a book about, you know, happy savages. I'm like, I get it, right? You know, the savages are untouched by, you know, you have this... this anthropological theory that society is what corrupts you. And that man is happy when they're like naked and free in the woods. And you wrote a little book about it and I get it. And that's all, you know,
2: no, oh, fight club did the same thing. do. Yep.
0: Right. And then you're done. <laughs> and so, and I, I don't feel like there's nuggets of gold to, ke- if you keep, if you keep digging, if you mm-hmm. keep digging, you're just going to get the same idea.
1: Yeah. No, that's just fair. So I think that all these authors are getting at two different things. So one question is how does the Canon come to exist? And that's the history of greatness, joining itself to greatness which is, I don't want to pretend is an easy process. And even those saying that sentence, like it kind of shouldn't make any sense, but we do receive that and we can read what those before us have said. This is great. I think an, an especially easy way to do this is to look at who references what. So when you're reading something, what are they referencing? Who are they reading? And that's some indication of who great thinkers, great authors are reading before them. So it's much easier to trace the canon from present day to past than it is to in the moment Recognize greatness, and that's I think the problem with Eliot's quote is to say it's really hard to know who today are the great poets of a hundred years from now. Who's yeah. going to be remembered? Who what authors are going to be remembered a hundred years from now? And so that that's why I disagree with elliot's There's probably position.
0: like a shoebox somewhere filled with yes. amazing poetry that we won't discover. Like a kid's still writing it, and uh, and we're going to discover it when he's dead, and we're going to be like, oh my goodness, you know, this is.
1: We won't know epic. until later, and that's in, um it's actually it's funny that AJ's example was The Shawshank Redemption because it when it first came out it failed at the box office it was a flop when it came out but now if I'm not mistaken I could look this up but I'm not going to I think it's the number one movie on IMDb like most highly regarded movie on IMDb it's deserves it yes but at the time was not recognized that way I would not put Thoreau in the same category but with of, of I don't know, yeah I liked him as a high schooler but probably wouldn't like him now Walden did not sell well in his life there were like tons of copies of it made because he thought it was going to be great. They didn't sell. He died. And then it became popular after he died to recognize greatness in our day is very hard. And I think probably not worth our doing. Uh, but the tradition that comes before us is more trustworthy, more established. Is that a fair place to get to with this? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this, you're going to think this is taking a weird turn, but it's not. So any, any other comments before I move on? No, you're driving the van, maybe. Okay. So that was Harold Bloom. So, We've gone from Lewis, I guess, Elliot to Lewis to Tolstoy to Harold Bloom. Now just for kicks and giggles, let's read from Alan Bloom. So this is the closing of the American mind. I promise I'm citing the right people this time. Um, There is, there's something in Lewis's argument that I, I am questioning the value of critics in reading Lewis's second chapter. And I think there is something to the fact that Lewis, um, it matters that Tolstoy actually wrote good books and then wrote an essay on what is art. And even if we disagree with him, we should give it more credibility because he actually achieved the thing that he set out to describe. So if he's if he's claiming a
0: a like uh, an organizing principle about art, and he did, and then he has created really good art, you yes. should say, okay, well, we can't just throw him out that if someone who claims an organizing principle about art and makes like really bad art, yes. Um, then we can be like, uh, uh, that person maybe doesn't know what he's talking about.
1: Yes. So then this is from, so this is Harold or uh, Alan Bloom's quote on that. one. Well, crap. Going.
0: Well, maybe Elliot's right because See, like Lewis
1: wrote yeah. good his, books. Watch this go full circle. Uh-oh. This is so good. The scholar cannot understand the text that he, Purports to interpret. Schiller might be able to grasp the essence of the Iliad because, as a creator, he is akin to Homer. He could not understand Homer as Homer understood himself because his mind was of a different historical epoch, but he could understand what it meant to be a poet. A scholar can do neither. And when I'm reading scholar, I'm thinking critic in the same way, but maybe that's unfair. A scholar can do neither. From the point of view of life and from the point of view of truth, modern scholarship is a failure. Hegel ridicules the typical German gymnasium teacher who explains that Alexander the Great had a pathological love of power. The teacher proves the assertion by the fact that Alexander conquered the world. The teacher's freedom from this illness is attested to by the fact that he has not conquered the world. (laughs) The story encapsulates Nietzsche's (laughs) criticism of the German university and its classical scholarship. The scholar cannot understand the will to power, not a cause recognized by science, which made Alexander different from others, because the scholar neither has it, nor does his method permit him to have it or see it. The scholar could never conquer the mind of man. Clearly, as teachers, we have conquered the love of money. (laughs) There it is. So you can teach on that. So that's why Great Expectations is actually the perfect book for you to teach, isn't that? Uh, so, uh, So... I guess well, I'll lay that quote out there.
2: Teach about obsession because you're apathetic? Is that because kind of <laughs> well, you've overcome that? Well, and I feel like
0: the only way we can keep being teachers of high qualities, we need to start, like, writing books and stories. Cranking on story- classics. No, no, cranking on classics, like writing poetry. And, I
1: think you're right. And writing novels and stuff. I think you're right. Oh, man. So, I'm this sorry that the bar has every been podcast. raised. But, so, the scholar is insufficient. He's talking about scholar. I'm hearing critic, but I'm also hearing... I'm a, I I like to listen to lots of podcasts at two times speed. And a number of those podcasts are political podcasts. And what I'm also hearing in this is like, I'm listening to people who are interpreting events that they're not a part of. Yeah. And so why do I care? Like, why am I wasting my time listening to people who aren't in the game can't, or aren't actually in the game. Like why, why not listen to first off? Anyway, this is where I'm thinking it's a weird turn because I think a lot, well, it makes me, we should talk about our podcast a little bit. I guess. Yeah, I was like, we, you do we, realize we, we, we kind of do this, but we should talk about <laughs> who we are. I guess what we should talk doing. about that. Anyway, so that's where I'll lay that quote out there. Give me, give me some thoughts. What,
0: what, do you think? Well, first, my first thought is: is anybody listening to us at two times speed? That's what I do. Am I doing it wrong? Because if <laughs> you are,
2: good. That sounded it. really normal.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> That was your first thought? <laughs> I can do this crazy voice thing? Yeah. By the way, have we ever talked about how you should try listening to us at half speed because it's the funniest thing you ever listened It sounds like to? we're drunk off off our uh-huh. tree. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It does.
0: But okay, back to this. So, I mean, yeah, uh, the world and the internet is filled with armchair critics. Yes. Who aren't actually, who aren't actually in the game. aren't actually in the game. Yeah. And we are chief among them. You think in so? the class? Well, we're doing a podcast on classical stuff. I, I, this but like I said in the intro, yeah. we are not trying to rec- resurrect like some sort of golden age of education. Yes, but we are trying to seek out the timeless things of the, the things that because they're timeless have survived yes. for centuries and are actually useful in the forming of taking b- young barbarian children and turning them <laughs> into civilized human beings. Yes, but all yes, sorry. So. Um, but also so in goal. that sense, like yeah. it's it's what all people should be doing, yes. and you don't have to be a
2: writer of classics in order to be a man. Yeah, I still kind kind of call hogwash, and that no non-writer can judge whether a, a work is good or powerful. Okay, I, how how would I ever recommend a book? I, I still fall into Lewis's logical problem, right? That's fine. H- yeah. How do you? How would I know what movies to go see? Apparently, I'm not a good enough critic to know which one is good, so I should ask someone else, but how do I know that they know what's good, especially if they're not an actual filmmaker?
1: No, I think it's different. I th- I think it's totally okay to question the validity of film critics because you can go and experience that movie yourself. You can read the book yourself. Well, that's what. That's but then how do I trust my own judgment of it? You should be critical of your own judgment. Well, it comes, it comes back to like how does taste get developed? Yep.
0: So maybe when you were of legal drinking age, uh-huh. you probably had beer for the first time. Yeah, I did. I hated it. It was the worst. Was and at, uh, you probably didn't like it. I yeah. remember when I was young, and so my dad has a glass of scotch at the end of most work days, mm-hmm. a glass of scotch and a bowl of corn chips. And uh, I remember being young and trying scotch. I'm like, oh my goodness, this could take pain off the wall. This is disgusting. <laughs> yeah. and, and same thing with coffee. I remember drinking coffee. And of course, like all 15-year-olds drinking coffee for the first time, you load it with cream and sugar. Uh, so you right. drink like creamy, yes. creamy sugar Not really with a coffee. little bit of coffee, yeah. but now I drink coffee, like black as death and thick as oil. Uh, and I love it. So, <laughs> You've made it. um, yeah. so the, I guess the question is, it just comes down to like, how do tastes get developed? Well, they get developed by somebody either telling you that something is good or you have some sort of internal drive to say, everybody says that this is good and I don't like it. Yep. Yeah you're at a very dangerous place in your development. Um, one what path you can go down is, screw everybody, I'm just going to go after what I like, mm-hmm. and you're probably just going to end up with, like, shallow, easy things. Mm-hmm. Or you can say, there's probably something wrong with me and my taste. I am going to either pretend I like it, which is, I think, another bad way to go about because then you're just like, emperor's wearing no clothes eventually. Right. Like, someone could give you spoiled wine you'd be like oh this (laughs) wine's so delicious like my mojito story yeah Yeah. um and then the other way is to say i want to figure out why people who say that this is good and i don't yet know why this is good i want to figure out what they've got and so you you work at it and you work at it until you honestly think the thing is good so for example like i now honestly think milton is great and i think probably the first time i read it i was like this is just old stuffy English that's that's hard to understand, and the only reason people like it is because of reputation. But mm-hmm. now when I read it, I'm like, this is, there are some passages that are just so delightful to read out loud that I am happy that I get to teach in my English class three times in one day so that I get to read that passage aloud three times in a day and see the kids' reactions to it, right? Mm-hmm. So in some sense, the very fact that I've had to teach it, let's see, three times a day, every day for seven years in six, you know, six weeks a year. Like how many times have I gone through Milton? And, you know, a lot. Um, um, I've now developed a taste for it. Mm. So I think it's just like um, uh, this is kind of what this, these people are saying. Like um, one person saying, well, only people with taste can tell you something's good. And other people are saying like, no, people who don't have taste can tell you it's good. They just need to work at getting taste. I don't know. I just sort of feel like it's a, just a developmental
2: thing as opposed to a, um. So I'm trying to think through the criteria of what it should be, right? I'm, I'm uncomfortable with Eliot's notion that only contemporary s- poets only contemporary poets can be the ones who can criticize the thing. So yeah. I think there's... because it's not true, right? I can put a piece of bad writing and a piece of good writing next to each other on the board for my ninth graders, and my ninth graders can easily recognize which is better, right? At least most of the time. Mm. And so... There's got to be something in... Unless they're trying the, to be punks. Unless
0: they're being like, it's just, no, this is just my opinion. I really feel like the one on the left is better than the one on I've the right. I've had that, where they're trying to be
2: punks, but honestly, they can sit down and they can usually recognize the better one, which means it's not just professional poets that can recognize good art. There's something else there.
1: But what if I, the more complicated one is when you put side-by-side lyrics from songs, because I hope all of you have had a student walk up to you and say, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life, and it's a top 40 song, <laughs> and you're like, oh, oh, buddy. And you put that next to Milton.
0: You can distill all top 40 songs in Nowadays, into I'm great. Yeah. No one realizes it. One day
2: they will. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I, I think <laughs> that's, that's, all, that's yeah. unfair because songs are a completely different art form than Milton, right? It's it's a different party. If you put, say, a recent pop song against some of the best Queen songs, there or is. like okay. there you sure. go, and the kid's yeah. like, "You're right. Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody is way better than whatever trash I'm listening sure. to." Right? So that's but not a everyone experience. realizes that. So yeah. I think there's a certain level on which experience of the art to a certain degree, or Graham, what I think you'd call it, development of taste, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, What you need is the the more breadth of a thing you have experienced, then the more qualified you are as a critic. So as a soldier, right, I can tell you what sword's a good sword because I've probably used a bunch of different swords. Mm -hmm. A kid that picks up a sword for the first time has no idea. He has no breadth of experience or taste. Mm -hmm. The person who can best tell you what swords are good is a smith. Right. right. Yeah. That's the person who knows the best. In fact, well, not, maybe not always. Maybe he's making what he thinks is good, but he's never actually used him in the field. That's so a they better, crack. Sure. Right? This is great. Yes, exactly. And so, yep. I think as an experience, a person who experiences sunsets, yes. I will be able to tell you which sunsets are the best ones. Yes. Right? But I can never tell you to the degree that God can, the creator of the sunsets, mm-hmm. he can say, this is the best one, and mm-hmm. look what I've done. Yeah. Right? That's what I'm agreeing with that almost. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I'm agreeing with that of
1: the scholar has a skill, but that skill is not getting in the mind of Alexander the great or understanding conquest of men's minds. That's what Alan Bloom was talking yeah, about.
0: Who's going to understand Milton more? Um, the poet who just writes poetry or the person who has tried like either in the political sphere or in a company or something yes. who's tried to create a environment for everyone's health And is betrayed. Yes. Like, that person, when he reads Milton's Paradise Lost, he is going to understand the fury one should have at Satan who is, because of his pride, is trying to destroy something that is actively good. So, if you're – like, for example, if we we have a school and we are trying to create something actively good and then – there is something there's an undermining force that wants to undermine it because of i'm not there's nothing going on at the school i'm just using this as an example because it's our sphere right. um if if someone's you know because of pride or arrogance or just hatred of the good is trying to undermine something like milton can help us understand that situation yes we don't have to be a poet mm-hmm. but we can experience but we're experiencing what's happening in in but that what this epic is talking about we're experiencing it in our own small microcosmic school way, but it can help inform what noble, good, righteous behavior should be. Yes, I think that's akin to your using the
2: sword in the field, as opposed to using yeah. the sword in the shop. I actually think a breadth of experience or development of taste is probably more important than, I mean, if we're talking cont- contemporary poets, mm-hmm. I can right. be a really good contemporary poet and having never read yep. anything before my birth. And then that's when awful. I, for the first time, read Milton, I will say... What is this trash? It right. doesn't make any sense. I it would can't be make better with capital of it. letters. It would be better without capital letters. And <laughs> can good. we get some free pros in here? Like a little, <laughs> like geez, what's with all these like rigid line breaks and rhyme schemes? Yeah. Like, I would, I would react in revulsion to yeah. that. And in fact, my lack of breadth of experience would have would hinder me recognizing it. Yeah. But I do think there is something to be said for the experience of crafting it yourself. Yes. Right, it does change your breadth of experience. right? I think that's just one factor in many, and that's why some writers, and I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis here, are incredible because he he has that skill of making it, right? He, is, yep. he has written some incredible books. At the same time, I know Lewis has a, a breadth and depth of experience of ancient and contemporary yes. poetry. Yep. He has read everything from yep. Homer to Beowulf and everything in between, and in fact, written a lot of decent criticism of those books. And so his breadth of experience is supplemented by his his creation experience. But I don't think your business as a creator qualifies you necessarily to comment on the worth of the thing. Like, I think the soldier has something to bring that the smith doesn't necessarily know as far as the usefulness of swords. But then so does the smith to the... So does the smith. And so the 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 best would be a soldier smith, right? He's the guy you want to go to, the guy who makes his own swords and then has to use them in the field. In fact, I would go to no other smith. Mm, This is good. I I like all this. So I guess where we landed is that essentially it's some piece of
1: all of these answers. So I, I would say that there is validity to Tolstoy's point that if you're reading a book and it's not impacting you in any way, Either you're not ready for the book, which is what was true of me, or it could just be a bad book. And it's okay to say that and acknowledge that. Oh, they're out there. Yeah, of course they're out there. But I do think there's a lot. I I, I like T.S. Eliot's position the least of all of them. AJ, for the reasons you're saying that I think limiting it to contemporary poets doesn't really make a lot of sense. But to Harold Bloom's point of greatness being the only thing that can join itself to greatness... I think what gives us the ability to talk here about classical education is that, listener, you might not know, AJ and Graham have both been, uh, have both received the best teacher award for Veritas Academy. Have you, was it multiple times? You can't. Okay, You get
2: it once and then I think there's a three or four year break
1: yeah. in between. So, so, listener, what you're listening to are excellent classical educators who are talking on this podcast, which is what gives us some ability to talk about classical education, the theme of this podcast. Does that make sense? There's excellence that you all have that we're able to talk about here. Um, but but I as a I guess all of us oh, are shucks. Uh, all, Go on. All of, yeah. yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> and uh, ultimately
1: all of us are lay people, but there's also the hope of like these books that we read are accessible and we hope what we point you to are the books themselves. I do in fact hope you will pick up the preface to Paradise Lost. I hope you will read Paradise Lost.
2: You should read the preface before you read Paradise
1: Lost. <laughs> I know. think so. Yeah.
2: I think jumping right in, you're gonna yeah.
0: I, I think have trouble. My final thought on Elliot versus Lewis is the reason why Elliot kind of puts me off and Lewis doesn't is that Elliot went about his act of creating poetry in a somewhat, like, arrogant... Mm, I, yes. poet Poets are so important kind of yes. way. Like, I imagine he, like, you know, wore capes and grumbled through London and, like, you know, when someone was like, how are you doing today, Mr. Elliot? He would be like, the winds of howl. And you're like, oh, my goodness, just dude! Like, how are you doing? Just talk to me. Um, and he sort of takes himself too seriously, whereas... He's the kind of guy that gets poet tattooed on his arm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Whereas you, you, you get the sense that Lewis looks at his writing and his creative output as just a a normal output of an ordinary person's life. Like, he was writing little kid stories when he was a little kid, and he's writing little kid stories because he enjoys it as a man, but he doesn't say that this is all in all super important, and Elliot says, only poets can understand poets, and you're just like, get over yourself. I think and more importantly,
2: Lewis had humility. That's, there were, that, and that's what I'm getting at. Is there were like some a, things he wrote that f- failed, and he knew they failed, and and I think... You can write whatever you want to write but if at the end of the day you have to sit at the feet of Milton yes you recognize the literary worth of your you should y- approach output. every book that y- is consider that you know has a
0: reputation of having some kind of level of um uh, like respect about it and you should approach that thing humbly and diligently try to mine the gold out of it and if at the end you have not found any gold the first thing you should say is there's probably something wrong with me mm-hmm. And it should be after many times that you say, no, this
1: book has nothing in it. Yeah, that's fair. And just, you're saying this, but, so yes, there's a universality, but also we should be pursuing greatness in whatever our thing is to then, that's what gives us an authority to talk about any subject. Yes. So, pursue excellence, pursue deep reading, pursue whatever your craft is, go after it full full force. So, it's both of those. Yeah. And that, that's all I have. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I still have more thoughts about what Hanenberg and I disagree on, but we'll. we'll
1: probably come back to it with. Oh, I'm the sure. TS episode. Oh, Hanenberg
0: and I will be, we'll be hashing this out for until Ever. we're like sweaty toothed old men.
1: I was going to say, I don't think you all are going to resolve this one. Yeah. So. Nope. 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 All right, Graham.
0: Bring us well, on. this has been classical stuff. You should know. Oh, we've got a couple of classical things we got wrong and I will go through them very quickly. One, the town. So last podcast of Plantagenet part five, Um, the town in France I could not pronounce that I thought was Reem or Reims, Like of paper. Is apparently Reims. With an M. (laughs) (laughs) No, I have no reaction. Sorry.
2: I I don't know how the French can ignore so many consonants. I know. So,
0: Reims, Reims. Wrongs. Anyway, so there you go. Cool. And then another classical thing we got wrong was I said that St. Valentine was the missionary to the Irish, and because it's St. Patrick's Day on Sunday, I <laughs> should point out that that is definitely wrong. <laughs> and it was St. Patrick who there was is. the missionary to the Irish. St. Valentine was someone in Rome that got his like, hands dropped off or something. So... Um, those are two classical things I got wrong. If you want to email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. If you have a great definition of art or want to weigh in on the great Hennenbergian, Donaldsonian <laughs> debate, great. Uh, you can. If you want to tweet us at us at classicalstuff, Uh, You may do so, C-L-S-S-C-A-L
2: stuff. Still going to try to do a hostile takeover of classical stuff. I feel like it's Manifest Destiny, that classical stuff should be The guy hasn't tweeted in forever. Um, And we will like and retweet and
0: talk to your things. Um, And um, you can find us at classicalstuff.net and look at pictures. And yeah, um, we're working on some things in the background, maybe even like a comment section on classical stuff so we can maybe get some conversations going on specific episodes but thank you listener for listening to us we appreciate you and enjoy your sp- 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 <laughs> bye. bye um bye <laughs>